0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to talk about world order. We have a special cast, a historian, a diplomat and a journalist to help us make sense of how war and diplomacy and the ideas and the role of individuals and accidents have played in creating and destroying order over the years. And I'm absolutely thrilled to to welcome Margaret McMillan, who is Professor of History at the University of Toronto, Emeritus Professor of International History and former Warden of St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford, who's just written a fascinating book called War, How Conflict Shaped Us. Second up, we have Robert Cooper, Who is a very distinguished British and European diplomat who has played an important role in advising various leaders of of European diplomacy Um, in Downing Street uh, when Tony Blair was Prime Minister. He's also helped to shape the European External Action Service as Director General of Politico Military Affairs in Brussels, but. Even more important than that has a track record of writing lots of fascinating books about world order, including his most recent volume, which is called The Ambassadors, Thinking About Diplomacy from Machiavelli to Modern Times. And last but definitely not least, we have Gideon Rachman, who is the chief foreign affairs columnist for the Financial Times, also author of various books about uh, international relations. His last book was called Zero. Oh no, that was called Easternization, wasn't it? Before that, Zero-Sum World. And he's writing another book about strong men, I think. Anyway, thank you very much to all of you for joining. We're going to talk about these sort of three big themes which we'll try and use to, to structure the discussion. First of all, about the idea of order. And um, what kind of ideas have been in people 's minds over over the years? Secondly, to think about war and how it 's changing, and thirdly, to think about Europe and where it figures and how it 's been shaped by these bigger things. So maybe start off with you, Robert you, Your book is an incredibly individual account of of diplomacy it 's fascinating um, you 've focused on a lot of people who you particularly admire over the ages over the last few hundred years who 've shaped the nature of the world but through your accounts of them, you also talk about some quite big ideas about how order is shaped, which I think have both been put forward by these individuals, but also acted as a as a kind of channel for for how they behaved. So maybe we could start with that very big question about how we should think about world order and how that's changed over the over the centuries. Well, I I read the real title of the book
1: is actually Thinking About Diplomacy, and I take the view that it's easier to think in concrete terms and more practical to think about actual events. And in this case, we're talking about diplomacy. So I really start with the people and look at what they did and how they did it and why they did it. In a way, how they did it seems to me to be important because just what happened one damn thing after another, that's not how I think of history. And particularly if you've worked a bit as a diplomat, then you ask yourself, How did these people manage to do these things? How did, well, I'm afraid I start in the end with Jean Monnet because he's perhaps the person I find most impressive. How is it that one man, not really just with one idea, with a whole history behind him, can do something which really changes Europe and changes the European order? Uh, He's an outstanding example, but others contributed in all kinds of ways along the way. I mean I start with Machiavelli actually because his ideas matter essentially a failure actually because he never really achieved any of the things he wanted except he wrote probably the most read book that anybody's ever written in, in those times but ideas change the way people look at the world and actions change the world that change the way in which the world works
0: but through looking at those people, you kind of lay out some quite different ways for thinking about how order should be organised, about the role of states and both the, the kind of creation of sovereignty and modern ideas of sovereignty. And then the, I suppose the reason why Monet is so radical is because he completely reinvents what sovereignty means.
1: Yes, I'm absolute, not absolutely sure that that's, that that's quite what he did. I think he, in, he reinvented the way in which sovereign states Operate, uh, work with each other. There's a, I quote a letter from, from von Gentz at one point in which he says, and he's talking about the concert of Europe, in which he says, none of the states of Europe can remain isolated. And therefore, um, if we keep the concert of Europe going, that is to say, regular multilateral communication among each other, it'll be all right. But if we don't, then we're going to find ourselves in all kinds of combinations, alliances, reconciliations, and actually, he's writing in uh, about 1820. Actually, it's a forecast of what happens on the road to World War One. So, states can't remain isolated, and the
0: question is,
1: how do they? How do they operate together?
0: So, Margaret, you've written obviously the the kind of standard work about how we got into world war 1 and the world that came out of out of world war 1 as well how do you see the combination of of individuals and ideas in terms of shaping world order in in through your own work
2: i think we have to understand both and you know, if you look too much at individuals, you get accused of doing the great man theory of history or the great woman theory of history, which I think is, is a misattribution. You know, it, it, what we need to look at is people in their time, because we come into whatever we do with ideas and there is a framework within which we operate. And there are things that we take for granted often without even fully knowing what they are. I mean, James Joel, the the great British historian, talked about unspoken assumptions, things we all sort of agree to that we don't even bother to articulate half the time because, we don't think we need to. And I think world order operates in this combination of key figures. I mean, people with a great deal of power can really make a difference. We know that. I mean, if Hitler had only ever been head of Albania, for example, or if Stalin had ever only become the the leader of Georgia, they would have caused vast misery to their peoples and probably to their neighbors, but they wouldn't have been able to provoke massive conflicts on on a great scale. And so we need to look at the circumstances in which the individuals operate. We have to accept that some people at certain times have great power. But ideas and values and assumptions change over time. I mean, I think in the 19th century, we got a tremendous emphasis on law, people believing that you could build a framework of international laws just as you did in domestic societies, a great faith in the power of laws, of agreements, of regulation, which I think is still with us today. Perhaps we have less faith in it today because of what's been happening recently. But I think we also had, after the First World War and again after the Second World War, great hopes, even if they were not fully met, for international institutions, for organizations which would take groups of, of nations together and, and, and help them to work together. And so I think we change our views of international order. It's always going to be a problem for us, and it's always going to be under threat. And we're always going to have to try and get this balance between the individuals and the worlds in which they operate. So, Gideon, you've been
0: spending a lot of the last few decades interviewing leaders in different parts of the world and, and talking to them about the sort of great men and women that Robert and Margaret have been talking about, though maybe slightly less great than, the, than some of the figures in, in Robert's book, given uh, what's happened over the last few years. How important do you think ideas are in terms of the way that they act, if we think about the last few decades where you've been sort of working
3: I mean, I think they're very important, but I think that, um, you know, the the phrase Margaret used from James Joel, unspoken assumptions are often as powerful as the ideas that people consciously are trying to use. So that, for example, I mean, a lot of what I've written about over the last 20 years and so is about Britain's relationship with the European Union. And I think for a lot of British policymakers, more often the the politicians than the diplomats, but both really, unspoken assumptions were partly what created British Euroscepticism. This sense that they never really got the European Union. They felt that there was something sort of unnatural about this supranational organisation. And that that was based in a in a very British tradition, which in a way that imbibed about Britain's an unusually stable country, its internal order you know, maybe it's about to be severely disrupted with Scottish independence, but, but for, you know, a, a couple of hundred years, they had in their mind a very sort of nation state centered idea of the world, found the EU difficult to get their heads around. Whereas European people from the European Union were kind of more conscious of the ideas of Monet and so on. I mean, it's interesting that Robert starts with Monet and I would tell a story against myself. You know, I managed to do a history degree at Cambridge, and then I was later doing a year at Princeton. And an American historian said to me, you know, the person I most admire in 20th century Europe was Jean Monnet. And I, I said, like, who? You know, I literally <laughs> haven't heard of the guy. And that is, that, is, that is rather telling. I mean, OK, my studies had stopped in the 90s, but still, you know, he's a central figure in, in European history. And he was not somebody who'd featured in a British education and European history courses actually
1: he uh, no he finished uh, he finished World War I with an honorary knighthood, which doesn't happen to many thirty uh, uh, year old foreigners. He actually played quite an important role in both world wars without ever having uh, with, without being military but he's not the uh, i mean I, he came to mind because he is somebody I admire um, actually I subtitled the chapter on on money, the practical imagination because he had imagination, which I think is a great quality for diplomats, to conceive of a present which is different from the, uh, the... a future which is different from the present, but then to find a practical way towards it. Yeah, and then thinking back to Princeton, there, there, there was a figure who I know you
3: both thought about, who I was lucky enough to meet for a few hours, was George Cannon. George Kennan. A- and, and I think he is a really interesting example of an individual who perhaps did shape history, but because of the moment that he was in, he was able to articulate some ideas that then took on a momentum of their own, actually a momentum that he didn't always subsequently agree with. But but he also was an ex-diplomat and thought about diplomacy. And I remember talking to another historian about Kennan's own work on the outbreak of the First World War. And I said, "What what did you think of it? And this guy, who was, I think, more inclined to think in terms of big structural forces said, oh, I found it a bit disappointing because his basic view was if only a few sensible people had got together, they could have kind of avoided all this. And that's not really how history works. And I, d- I don't know what the answer is. But Margaret, you wrote about the, the, the outbreak of the First World War.
2: I mean, I think when people get together, we, we know that negotiation me- makes a difference. We we see negotiation in our own lives. You know, we negotiate difficult situations, we negotiate difficult relationships, we negotiate the buying of cars or houses. We understand that unions and and management get down and talk to each other and they negotiate something. And so why this idea of people talking to each other is seen as somehow somehow futile when we know from our own experience that it makes a difference. And I think one of the things that is really worrying today is is the downgrading of diplomacy. Um, I think, you know, leaders have become fascinated with summits and they love them because it gets them away from their domestic troubles and they can, you know, go to lovely places and look important. But I don't think that replaces the really patient, hard work of diplomacy, which should be there the whole time. And also knowing about other people, which diplomats do. So I'd love to
0: move on to war quite soon, but maybe we could just uh, stay with Kenan for a couple more minutes because there's so much talk now about a new Cold War, which is another way of kind of thinking about the world that we're in at the moment. Gideon's just been writing about that recently. So Kenan, I know he, he wasn't just about containment. You make a big point of that in your um, chapter on him, Robert, but his thinking did completely frame the way that many people thought about most of, uh, of, well, the second half of the 20th century. And people are now trying to look at the world again through that kind of prism. What what does Kennan teach us today?
1: Well, I think he would teach us to um, uh, not, not look at the history of relations with the Soviet Union when we're talking about China, because they're very different and it's a very different world. And Kennan, like the others, he starts with facts. Whereas the time he was writing most people started with fantasies about the Soviet Union because hardly any of them had been there or really met people or tried to do business with them. And China is a very, very different proposition from the Soviet Union. It's already much more integrated. The Soviet Union was trying to live in a world on its own. But the striking thing about Kenan is that though he hated the Soviet Union, he loved Russia and had a real deep sympathy for the Russian people. So I admire both of those. I I admire the sympathy and I admire the the rational analysis as well. And somehow you need both.
0: Margaret, maybe we, we can bring war into this. I mean, one of the key sources of order and disorder over the centuries has been war. And it's played such an important part in shaping every aspect of our lives, the whole idea of the state a lot of our kind of assumptions and and the idea of war is also used um in all sorts of different contexts now which are quite far away from the sort of more traditional sort of ideas of violence between states do you want to talk a bit about how we should think about war as a kind of determinant for our world and and how that is changing as well over the years
2: i think we tend to think if we are living in the very peaceful parts of the world a lot of us do that war is something that happens elsewhere or happened in the past. Um, you know, I think there's been an unwillingness to confront the reality of war, which is that there's always a possibility of war. And as we know, there are a great many wars in the world at the moment. But those of us who've enjoyed what is often now called the long peace since 1945 have got out of the habit of thinking of war or, or thinking that it's never going to come too close to us. And I think that's dangerous. And that's the way a lot of people were thinking in Europe before 1914, that war was something they no longer did, and it was only other sorts of people who did it. And I think we should be very careful because war can come, and it can come by accident. It can come not totally unexpectedly, but it can come without people necessarily willing it to come. Sometimes nations will get into situations where they find themselves unable to stop a slide towards war, and I think that's what happened, again, in the First World War. And so I think we do need to think about it. And I think we need to think about how to strengthen the various regimes that we have in place, arms control regimes, um, attempts to defuse situations, attempts to use the United Nations to try and broker um, deals which will prevent war spreading. And what I worry about, and of course, Robert and Gideon are much better informed than I am on this, but what I really worry about is the weakening of the international regimes we have. And it seems to me we haven't been paying enough attention collectively to really important issues of arms control, for example, and not just what we have at the moment, what's coming. We're not really dealing with autonomous weapon systems yet, and yet they're coming. How do we deal with systems that may, in fact, escape the control of human beings? And how do we build in ethical and, and other sorts of safeguards? We're talking about it, but we're not doing much about it. So, uh, yeah, I'm concerned about where we go from here. And we still face the prospect of state-to-state wars. I mean, everyone's focused on China and the United States, but what about China and India? where their troops have been clashing recently up in the in the high Himalayas? What about the possibility of war between India and Pakistan? What about the possibility of war between Egypt and Ethiopia over water? I mean, I think there are a number of trouble spots in the world where it's possible, I don't say this with pleasure, it's possible to imagine wars breaking out. I just had a quick thought, listening to
3: Margaret speaking, that, you know, in a rather cynical way, we've needed war in the past to usher in new world orders. You know, that Wars have marked at transition points. so that the, the post-1945 order, the setting up of the UN, etc., you needed or it took mm-hmm. the Second World War to create that order. The, you know, similarly, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, you get a new order created. And I think an interesting question for our time is how do you manage power transitions without war to uh, underline that, you know, there is a new power structure there, I guess at the end of the Cold War, you had the effectively the internal collapse of the Soviet system. Um, and maybe this kind of hybrid warfare that the Russians, etc., attempting to try to undermine America's domestic order um, is consciously or unconsciously them applying those lessons that you're not going to defeat the United States, uh, you know, through a tank battle. But you might if their domestic order becomes deeply unstable win another kind of victory?
1: Well, the interesting, actually, the interesting reference there is the end of the Cold War, because we did have, for a brief moment, it it wasn't complete, we had half a tabula rasa then. We had the end of a war without having had the war. And um, maybe we need to manoeuvre ourselves so we can do that more often. Maybe what we're talking about is a kind of, maybe you can have competition between states without... Uh, without wars, a competition between societies almost. And that's why I think that, I think that rather than, um, some, imposing some rather puny sanctions on China, I think we ought to be looking much more hard at our own system and our own democracy. And one of the bits of my book that I I learned a lot from is the the rather short chapter on Denmark and Finland, two small states who survived in extraordinarily difficult positions because they would managed to create, although they were small, they would managed to create rather strong, resilient states. Therefore, I would say, let's, rather than try and change Chinese government, which we won't be able to do, let's have a look at the way we govern ourselves. Because if it's going to be a kind of peaceful competition between systems, well, let's make our system better rather than trying to impose sanctions on other people.
0: Margaret, how does this kind of interdependence, which Robert was talking about earlier, change the way that we have to think about war? Because, I mean, in some ways what's interesting is is people talk about how everything's being weaponized now from you know all the different points of contact that we have with ourselves from the internet to migration to trade regimes there are very few areas of of our life which are both not connected to each other and also not subject to this sort of manipulation and instrumentalization between countries that are competing with each other in ways which and maybe not violent in the way that the sort of First and the Second World War were, but still have quite sharp edges and, and do end up uh, hurting people in, in, in lots of different ways.
2: Well, we are much more interdependent than we were during the Cold War. And that's one of the significant differences, I think. The United States and the Soviet Union came to share ways of behaving And they came to share approaches to the Cold War, thank goodness, because they learned to manage it. But they had very little trade. They had very little contact. There was very little exchange between the Soviet people and the American people. And the situation with China, of course, is very, very different. But what we do have, and again, we can look to the past, is we have nationalism. And nationalism will often run counter or national feelings or national pressures on governments will often run counter to this interdependence. I mean, Britain and Germany were each other's greatest trading partners before the First World War. And there was a lot of cultural exchange, of course, and and a lot of intermarriage and whatever. But it didn't stop them from going to war with each other. And so I think we have to keep that in mind. But what I think is important, and I agree with Robert, you need to engage with other powers. And we need to remember that you can manage the declining and rising of powers. It has been done before. Britain and the United States talk about going to war in the Mm -hmm. 1890s over the Venezuelan border issues, Mm -hmm. and they didn't. And, you know, I I think if we start to believe the Thucydides trap, as it's often called, that a rising power will always fight a declining power, then we're in real trouble, because then it becomes something we get locked into, and that's dangerous. So how do you think that,
0: cause some people say that the reason why, you know, you could have power transition from the UK to the US was because of these shared ties that, you know, cultural ties and values and, and they're therefore it's unthinkable that the US could engage in a power transition to China, maybe India, possibly because it's a democracy, but the, but India is sort of underperforming. Uh, on lots of different indicators both as a democracy and as a great power if you do yeah. want a power transition to it what do you think the lessons from from the past are in terms of the u.s china relationship margaret
2: well you know britain and the united states yes they shared a common language but just sharing a common language doesn't mean you share a lot else and in the 1890s in fact there was a lot to separate them i mean britain had more or less supported the south in the american civil war which left a lot of very bad feeling and there were a lot of Americans who didn't come from the British Isles anyway and didn't have any particular feeling towards it. Or if they did, they were like the Irish, who, of course, had their own very particular feelings. So the United States and China don't have a shared language. But I think it is quite possible to imagine them dealing with each other and negotiating, because they have been doing it. I mean, they've been doing it really since the beginning of the, of the 1980s. And we know that there is the capacity on both sides to understand and work with the, with the other. I think what's needed in the West, and I think Robert's absolutely right. I think we need to get our act together. And we need to be more consistent than we have been in dealing with China. I mean, the Trump administration did not help, but then it didn't help on a, on a great many fields in international relations. One of the, the most
0: fun bits of your book, Robert, is where you talk about seeing people as genuinely different from yourself. And you said that the, the reason the Soviet Union was such a shock was it was the first big power that people had to deal with, which was not Western, which was kind of other from, from the yeah. West. And that that's why Kenan was so important, because he was trying to understand it and had this kind of sympathy with it. With China, we seem to be repeating some of the same mistakes that you thought were, that people were making about the Soviet Union afterwards, assuming that they define their interests in the same way as us, that they had the same goals. Whereas in fact, though lots of Chinese people have, have been educated in the West and are very familiar with the West, you don't have to spend that long in China to understand that they don't frame their interests in exactly the same way as Westerners do. And their hierarchy of needs is maybe somewhat different. The way that they think about politics and progress and other things is, is quite different as well. And there are other kind of important sources of their thinking, which we don't have at all, and which we shamefully understand very little of. How does that play into this? I mean, the variety
1: of China is fantastic. Unfortunately, we only ever each see, it's like the elephant, we only each see little bits of it. And probably, uh, you know, that's a, that's a lifetime study. That's partly why I revert to the first duty. And this is a bit of the, it's a bit of Kenan's long telegram as well. That the first, your first duty is to look after yourself, make your system work, try and understand other people's, but above all, make your system work. That you can change. You can't change the way other people are. You can change the way that you are.
0: That brings us back to to the sort of third theme that I was talking about, which is Europe in all this. Gideon, you've just written uh, quite an interesting column where you're talking about the resilience of of Europe and of the European Union, how wrong people have been to bet against it. How do you see Europeans fitting into this kind of non-European world that we're entering well, of course, I'm now terrified
3: that the European Union will collapse next week, proving me like a complete idiot. But uh, I mean, I wrote that actually partly in response to my own kind of previous Euro scepticism, which I haven't totally put behind me. I mean, I think, you know, the, the European Union, like all projects, has its uh, flaws. But but I think if you've made predictions that have proved wrong, you, you sometimes have to ask yourself why. And I think that, you know, it comes back to what I was talking about earlier, that, that there is a difficulty that the British, who've had a very nation state centred view of the world, and also a very, a view of the world in which constitutional arrangements are kind of unchanging over, over a long time, have difficulty coping with the idea that there was something very new emerging in the European Union that might work, actually, even though it was unfamiliar. But,
1: but as usual, it's not even true. We're not a nation state. We're now discovering that we're a free nation state.
3: Absolutely, that, that is true. I mean, and I think, you know, one of the points I made is that actually there's something ironic about the Anglo, British and American tendency to see the EU as on the point of collapse when both the United States and the UK are facing probably the most <laughs> severe <laughs> challenges to their own internal political stability for, you know, as long as I can remember. But yeah, I mean, I I, I think that... Th- a big interesting question about the European Union is, yes, you can enumerate all the reasons why it might collapse, you know, for example, can you have a common currency without a single government, etc, etc. But might it actually be something that has been produced by the historic demands of the time, by individuals conceiving it, but also a new set of circumstances arising that led to a new structure, which has been evolving, I mean, that's actually one of the characteristics of the EU is that it's it's in in constant sort of process of difficult revision and it understands that that is necessary. And I think that's very, again, different from, say, the US, which has this founding text, which, okay you can revise, but which is regarded as sort of um, holy writ and and really (laughs) as much as you need to know, whereas the European Union has constantly Fiddling, and uh, maybe that's a better way to go.
0: What do you think, Margaret?
2: I worry that Britain is, has left at the worst possible time for the European mm. Union. I mean, it's always had its internal strains, but it's being hammered by Putin, who's doing his best to, to cause mischief. It's got, you know, problems with countries, members, members like Hungary and Poland. And it's not a time for an institution which has worked, I think, extraordinarily well and has shown a way of developing an international order without resorting to war and bringing together former enemies, it's a bad time for it to come under threat. And so I very much hope, and I think Gideon's right, that it keeps evolving and we need to remember that. And I hope it will weather this particular storm and, and come out stronger. So, Robert, you've done
0: more than anyone in the world, I think, to shape the way that I think about the European Union as an order in your original pamphlet on the postmodern state and and world order, where you came up with these different ways of thinking about things. And and you never claimed that the postmodern... State was going to replace the modern or even the pre modern worlds, and that you claimed that back in the 90s that a lot of the important things that we face would be the interaction of these different systems. That's definitely been true. How optimistic do you feel about the post modern state now in 2021?
1: Well, I'm not sure I even use the term now, but I, I agree with Gideon. I think the European Union is fundamentally very strong. And if I may, I'm going to tell by the anecdote that is stuck in my brain because I was taking record at the European Council, the day after we'd invaded Iraq. And the chairman said, now we need to talk about Iraq. And they didn't. They refused. Nobody would open their mouth. As the silence grew more embarrassing, they got up from their seats and wandered over and gathered in two groups, one of those who joined the Americans and one who hadn't. Next morning, the first item on the agenda was something to do with Belgium and Italy being fined for having breached milk quotas. And suddenly, you found that Britain and Germany were shoulder to shoulder. So there you are. One evening, you're quarrelling about something of international importance, and the next moment, you're shoulder to shoulder with your previous foe the night before on milk quotas. I think that's a testimony to the strength of the organisation.
0: Well, that's a a great place to end this discussion. We've covered a, a huge amount of ground. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to the three of you. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. So obviously, the first thing everyone should put on all their bookshelves are the books which we've been talking about. Margaret's book on war, how conflict shaped us. Robert's book, The Ambassadors, thinking about diplomacy from Machiavelli to modern times. Gideon's past books on the zero-sum world and easternisation. And if you hang on until uh, next year, you can probably get the the next book, which I'm sure is worth waiting for. But apart from your own books, what else is on your bookshelves at the moment?
2: Well, I've just finished and enjoyed very much Philip Stevens' book, Britannia Alone. Which oh, yeah. is extremely well written, and it's one of those books that you thought you knew about the period, but he reminds you of things, and he puts it all together. It's it's a really good read, and of course, depressing, but but I found very informative.
0: Wonderful. What about you,
1: Robert? Well, I've just started reading a biography. I think it's out of print now, Woodhouse on Capodistria, because we've got the two hundredth anniversary of Greek independence, which is the first national independence, the first. National Revolution. And there's another book I've just ordered called The Greek Revolution, a dictionary. And by the way, finally, every night when I want encouragement, I read a bit of The Count of Monte Cristo. Comes enormously rich and revenges himself on his enemies. That's life.
0: <laughs> what about you,
1: Gideon? I've been reading
3: Empire Land by uh, Satnam Sangera, who's a journalist at the Times, but it turns out, I think, a very accomplished historian what he's done is write a sort of very cleverly constructed engagement with all the big questions about the impact of the British Empire on modern Britain. And he's done an enormous amount of reading and summarized it in a very digestible form. So if you want a kind of 10 pages on the legacy of slavery in modern Britain, or, uh, you know, 10 pages on the interaction between free trade and imperialism, he's read everything, summarized it in a very... uh, (laughs) kind of helpful way. And the book has been written up as a sort of anti-imperialist polemic, which I really don't think it is. I mean, obviously, he has a viewpoint. But I think it's a really kind of intelligent engagement with Britain's imperial past.
0: Thank you very much. We'll put a link up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to this, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours. And even better would be to go to whatever platform you've used to download the podcast and to give us a positive review and a five-star rating. But for now, from Margaret Macmillan, Robert Cooper, Gideon Rachman, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene
2: Riedel.